Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Welcome back to the Servants of Grace theology segment. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, a listener writes in and they have a great question. The question is, what does the Imago Dei mean? The image of God in the Bible. Now, the opening chapter of our Bibles in Genesis 1 is a thrilling story of creation and formation, laying the foundation for all that follows. We are told that in the beginning in Genesis 1, our home in the universe, the earth, was formless and void, covered in water and shrouded in darkness, while the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters in Genesis 1-2. As the days of creation unfolded, God gave formed to the earth and filled it. He separated the day from the night, the waters above to the waters below, and the dry land from the waters below. God filled these realms by putting lights in the sky to separate the day from night, creating living creatures to swim in the waters below and birds to fly in the sky above, and causing the earth to bring forth living creatures on the dry land. Finally, as the culminating act, God created another type of living being, man. The focus of the narrative clearly falls on this creature. Not only was this the final act of creation, but fully one-fourth of the story is centered on it. Something very uh, special and important is before us in the Genesis narrative. The chapter divides the totality of beings into two basic categories, the creator and the created. God stands alone as the uncreated Lord over all, the maker of the heavens and the earth according to Genesis 1. Everything else is created, and thus finite, temporal, dependent, and changeable. Some are living creatures, the plants and the animals. Some have the breath of life in them, as verse 30 of chapter 1 says. Among this group is man. Like the other members of the group, man is made both male and female and called to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, as Genesis 1, and 28 tells us. Other similarities could be noticed. Hair on the skin, females give birth to their young, and and so on and so forth. But for all the similarities that may be noted, there is something about man that makes him quite distinct from all the other creatures. Living things are first mentioned with the vegetation that God causes to spout out on the dry land. Then comes the creatures that live in the seas and the birds that fly in the air, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the air. They are all made according to their kinds. This phrase occurs 10 times and it leaves a bold imprint on the Genesis narrative. It indicates that while there is a great diversity among all the living creatures, there are groupings among them that share common features, forming, as it were, families of things, as in modern distinctions between genius and species. But the main purpose of the phrase is not so much to introduce us to the scientific work of taxonomy, rather it is to provide the background necessary for contrasting human beings with all other living creatures. Now, when God makes man, he breaks the pattern that he set by creating living things according to their kinds. The tenfold mention of this pattern, it causes us to expect with each new living creature to appear. But something quite different happens when man is made. He's not made according to his kind. Neither is man created according to any other kind among the living creatures. 
Man does not therefore belong to their kinds, whatever similarities there may be between him and the other creatures. To put it in modern scientific language, he is not a particular species within a given genus of living creatures. Man is unlike any other living creatures, as Genesis 1.26 says. And as surprising as it is, man is made according to God's kind, made in the image of God. Man, like God, is a personal being. God himself, as the Bible later reveals, is three persons, all sharing one divine essence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Human persons are created beings, and in that regard, as in others, they are similar to and share characteristic with other created beings. But what is most important about human persons is their likeness to God. This likeness is so very special that it sets them apart from all other creatures God made. Man is not made according to their kinds. He is made according to God's kind. In other words, man is made in the image and likeness of God. Now, bearing the image of God, the human persons are given a measure of sovereignty over all the earth with dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the livestock, and every creeping thing. They are also charged to subdue the earth. The language suggests a ruling, even a conquering position. As Psalm 8, 5 through 8 says, all things are placed under man's feet, but tyranny and exploitation are not in view. In fact, Genesis 2, 4 through 25 shows that man is to follow the example of God in his stewardship of the earth. God plants a garden in Eden and he puts the man there to work it and to keep it, as Genesis 2, 8 and Genesis 2, 15 says. What God initiates, man is to sustain and to cultivate. God names the light day and the darkness night. He calls the expanse of heaven and the water seas in Genesis 1.5 and Genesis 1.8 and Genesis 1.10. And now God commissions man to name all the living creatures that he has made, as Genesis 2.15 tells us. Although not using the vocabulary of image and likeness, Genesis 2 has its own way of underscoring the uniqueness of human persons among all the living creatures. When God formed the man from the dust and placed him in the garden, he declared that it was not good for the man to be alone. And so God determined to make a helper fit for him, as Genesis 2.18 says. Following this solemn declaration, God presented all the animals that he had made to the man in order that the man might name them. Why this parade of animals before man? Why, why did God not immediately create the woman? What looks like an eruption in the story is actually driving home the motivation of the story. In verse 20, it says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. The point is, is that human beings do not really belong to the animals, whatever characteristic we might share with them. There was not found among all of the animals a helper fit for Adam, a created being of the same kind as he, with whom he could fulfill his calling from God. And thus God made a woman who was bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Like Adam, she was made in the image and likeness of God. Together they were to labor in fulfilling the work of God to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, and to subdue it. God made the first ma the male and female, but all other humans would come into existence through a man and a wife married together under God and in covenant with God. What, what God did, the man and woman now were to continue having been made in the image and likeness of God. And yet, tragically, the man and the woman turned away from God and fell into sin, seeking to become more like God, as Genesis 3, 5 tells us, to choose for themselves what is good and evil. And thus, the image of God was defaced. 
Though made upright, they sought out many schemes. Their descendants would likewise bear this defaced image. And yet the image of God was not entirely lost, and what remains is still sufficient to sustain the sanctity of human life that is grounded in the image of God. Genesis 9-6 shows that taking innocent human life is an attack on the image of God, so it must be punished by death. Man, as the image of God, is to be a giver of life, not a taker of innocent life. And when we become murderers, we contradict our very purpose in life and forfeit the divine protection that covers us. And so special is our life to God that even a beast is put to death if it takes the life of a human being. Further, as we are to respect God and to bless him by our words, so we must never curse those who are made in the image of God. The whole of human ethics is grounded in the image of God. Husbands must love their wives as Christ loved the church, as Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 says. Fathers must discipline and instruct their children as the Lord does his children, as Ephesians 6, 4 says. The comforting love of a mother is the image and likeness of the comforting love of God, as we see in Isaiah 66, 13. Earthly masters should reflect the justice and the fairness found in the heavenly master, as Ephesians 6, 9 and Colossians 4, 1 says. And though sin has greatly defaced God's image in us, by God's grace in Christ, that image is renewed, as Ephesians 4.24 and Colossians 3.10 says. Living by that grace, people see our good works and give glory to our Father who's in heaven, as Matthew 5.16 says. And when our restoration is complete, we shall forever live in the presence of God, clothed with His glory, as we see in Revelation 21-22, through having truly become His kind of people. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching this episode of the Servants of Grace Theology segment. Until next week, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.